I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... A history of music in seven genres, with the New Yorker's music critic, Kelefasane, and his new book, Major Labels. Kalafasane has been a New Yorker staff writer since 2008, when he left his position at the New York Times, where he had been the pop music critic since 2002. He is also a contributor to CBS Sunday Morning, and previously he was the deputy editor of Transition, a journal of race and culture based at the W.E.B. Dubois Research Institute at Harvard University. Today we're going to be talking about Kalefa's new book, which is Major Labels, a history of popular music in seven genres. Kalefa, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Tell us, first of all, then, about what the idea behind the book is, and I guess what we mean by musical genres in this context. Well, yeah, so I had two ideas in mind, one friendly, one slightly unfriendly when I wrote this book. Uh, the friendly idea was I wanted to write a history of music. I've been writing about music since the 90s. I'm obsessed with music. And so I wanted to tell the story in the way that made it feel like a story. So I set some limits. I said, I'm going to tell the story of what happened basically since the Beatles broke up from the 1970s onward. And I think the story of music in the last 50 years has been largely a story of genres has been a story of how these musical communities, communities of listeners and musicians kind of mutate and evolve and fracture. And that's how music gets to the place where it has been, where for lots of people, music just seems kind of obscure and kind of complicated. And like, you know, people don't, or at this point, are a little afraid to even ask what the difference between house music and techno music is, or the various forms of metal, or what R&B means, or why people are always arguing over country music. So I thought maybe by telling the story of seven genres in, in the book, they are uh, rock and roll, R&B, country music, punk rock, hip hop, dance music, and pop music. 
I could sort of help people to understand what happened with music over the last 50 years and do so in a way that doesn't feel like an encyclopedia, but feels like a story or a series of stories. So that's the friendly motivation. The slightly unfriendly motivation is I feel like there is an emerging conventional wisdom that genres are bad, that genres limit creativity, that genres separate listeners from each other, that genres, you know, entrench the segregation that exists in our everyday lives. And so I wanted to take up for genres a little bit. I wanted to make an argument that genres are good often, are interesting, are important, and that the human urge to form communities is not something that we should run away for, and that therefore we shouldn't necessarily celebrate musicians for transcending genre like that's always a good thing, or look down our noses at musicians who are too closely identified with a genre. Again, if you think of a genre as a slightly pretentious French word for a community in a musical context, then yeah, it makes sense that we're always forming communities, arguing over these communities, deciding whether we want to leave these communities and and building new ones. So the stories of how those communities get made and unmade and remade, those are the stories I'm, I'm telling in this book. Yeah, I mean, that conversation about genre is obviously taking place in the literary world and in the film world, etc. Yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, but it strikes me that music in particular, the idea of, of the genre is is almost as much relevant to the fan base itself, isn't it? Like you said, the forming of communities and identity in the people that actually listen to the music as much as the people that are making the music. Well, yeah. And, you know, no, no listener, no writer is free of prejudices. And one of my prejudices is that I'm interested in fans. I'm interested in listeners, uh, sometimes, sometimes more than musicians, um, or at least, you know, sometimes more than I'm interested in what the musicians think they're up to. And music, you know, is an extraordinarily uh, social form, popular music, right? You can't go to a high school and look at what trousers the the kids are wearing and and figure out who their favorite playwrights are or who their favorite artists are, um, like visual artists. But music has a way of mapping onto our social tribes. And I think this is partly because often we listen to music when we're together. We have it playing in the background. And and this identity, this social identity of popular music is so strong that often even when we're alone listening to music, we find ourselves thinking of other people, not just the people who make it, but the other people who might be listening to it or the other people who might not like it, right? This is one reason why musical opinions tend to be so rancorous, right? Because I'm not sure that there's a way to dislike a form of music or a musical act without on some level disliking the people who listen to it, right? Part of the reason we fight about music is because we like to fight with each other. And part of the reason why certain types of music, certain songs, certain artists strike us as distasteful might be because certain people strike us as distasteful. So as well as this being a history of popular music in seven genres, it also has sort of autobiographical elements as you talk about your own evolution of music taste and your own journey to, you know, to become a music journalist at the New Yorker. It it seemed Uh, only fair to give readers a chance to judge for themselves how distasteful I am. (laughs) Um, well, so consequently, I, w- I want to talk about the genres in the book slightly out of order. And I want to start with punk. Punk! Because, yeah, let's talk about your, your own journey into music via your discovery of punk. Yeah, so the, the so my, my parents are both from Africa. My dad was from Gambia in West Africa. My mother uh, is South African. And they're academics, so they moved around a bunch. I was born in Birmingham, England, lived in Ghana for a couple of years, lived in Aberdeen for a few years, and arrived to the U.S. when I was five. And yes, I had an Aberdonian accent at that point. And um, like many immigrants to the U.S., was just kind of like, 
puzzled, curious, fascinated by America and just trying to figure out like how things worked and what was going on. And that mixed when I was 14 with a fascination with punk rock. Uh, my best friend gave me a mixtape full of punk rock, broadly defined, and I was in. Like I converted, I pushed my Rolling Stones cassette aside and thought to myself, I'm never listening to the Rolling Stones again. Like it's strictly punk from here on out. And I think for me, part of why that was so seductive was precisely because the punk idea was an invitation to think about music in those terms, to think about music as something that could be bad, not just in the sense of mediocre, but like morally objectionable, right? And so therefore your opinions about music could be consequential, could matter. And, and obviously for someone who wound up becoming a music critic, that's, a, that's an enormously interesting and important idea. And so the idea that you could, that you could have a tribe and define your tribe and leave, every, leave other stuff behind and join this thing, that was important to me. And, and you know, I, I hear people, I talk in the book about people sometimes talk about punk rock and saying, you know, I saw those kids on the back of the record cover and they looked just like me and my friends. So I knew that I could do it too. And, and, that, and the familiarity was part of the appeal. For me, it was as much the alienness, right? I, I didn't know much about these people. I'm listening. It's 1990 and I'm listening to old Sex Pistols recordings. You know, I didn't know that much about it. And what I did know didn't sound anything like the suburban American life I was living. And so part of the excitement of punk, and I think this is probably true for much music, is the combination of that it seems totally alien but a little bit familiar. And I think that's something that people experience, whether they're listening to hip hop and seeing some rapper on stage, or it's a David Bowie concert, or it's just a glamorous pop star, right? That complicated dynamic of this thing is not like me, but it sort of is like me. I think that push and pull was really important to me. And that was a thing that punk offered. Of course, the other thing that punk offered was this idea of good and bad, this idea that it kind of inherited from rock and roll, this idea that somehow the mainstream was corrupt and commercial and bad, and that the underground, the counterculture was real and righteous and authentic. And, you know, that is an enormously powerful idea. That, that idea, in some ways, has been popular in lots of times and places where the actual music of punk rock is not that popular, right? Most people, even now, don't necessarily want to listen to the Sex Pistols, but a lot of people have nevertheless imbibed this idea that, like, maybe what's popular is kind of phony, and maybe there is some sort of more righteous underground that sees through the phoniness of popular culture, right? I mean, this is an idea that predates punk, but punk very much popularized this idea. And so that is part of why it has been so influential to me and to the culture at large. I say in the book, punk rock is one of those adolescent obsessions that I never quite outgrew and in that sense remain somewhat adolescent in my outlook, even as I came to love all other sorts of music and, and, and came to love, you know, in many cases, the most commercial and the least punk forms of music, right? If, if punk means making a radical break with, you know, the, the values and the sounds of mainstream culture, then if you are, as I was, a curious punk, you start wondering, well, how could I make a radical break with the sounds and values of punk rock? And in that sense, you know, listening to mainstream country music for anyone who grew up punk rock, that's about the most punk rock thing you could do. Yeah, but we'll talk in a little while about how you discovered country music, which is uh, extremely unlikely. But you know, just that, that idea of your, your evolution as someone who was going to become a, a, a writer about music, you know, someone about mm -hmm. writing about 
the culture of music, obviously like in embedding yourself in that very sort of like hardcore, authentic punk scene, to what extent do you think that is sort of responsible for you ending up being somebody who, you know, loves music and writes about it for a living? Or to what extent did that sort of straitjacket you for a period of time? No, I mean, I think it was enormously... I mean, I just did... There weren't things I cared about before punk as much as I cared about when I started listening to punk, right? It's not as if I was a music lover and then like my love of music was transferred onto punk. Like I liked music fine, but I wasn't obsessive about music or really obsessive about anything really until I got excited about punk. So in that sense, it's responsible for everything. And and as I say, it was the thing that sparked in me this idea of, of right and wrong and figuring out like where the good music was and what the bad music was. So that was, you know, one half of what made me want to write about music. The second half of it, I think, was getting excited about hip hop, which I'd been excited about as a little boy, you know, growing up in the 1980s, we had our Run DMC cassettes and our Beastie Boys cassettes. But I kind of rediscovered hip hop in the 90s and kind of dove into it. I kind of realized what I hadn't realized as a boy, which was how audacious it was, how weird it was. Even those records of Run DMC, uh, David Toop, when he was writing about them in the early 80s, referred to Run DMC as freakish. And it's true. It's just like a drum machine and two guys shouting at you. But because it became so popular so quickly, it didn't sound freakish. It was just kind of like what hip hop sounded like for a time. And so I was kind of able to hear the freakishness of hip hop. And the thing that really made me want to write about music was the fact that hip hop was popular. Right. The thing about punk is, yeah, okay, there's this band from Rhode Island called Drop Dead, and they play hardcore punk that's very militantly vegetarian, and they're singing, you know, 90 second songs about animal suffering, and their albums are all in black and white. Like, fine. And there's a bunch of people who like that, but that music is not meant to seduce the world. That music is not meant to convert everyone. And so, you know, that wasn't the kind of music that I necessarily felt driven to tell the whole world about. It's like, well, you've never heard of that band. Eh, That's fine. You probably wouldn't like them anyway. Whereas hip hop in the 90s, especially in the US, was so popular. And it felt to me like it wasn't being celebrated the way that it should. And and this is true even of some of the big names. The the first story I ever wrote for The New Yorker in 2001 was a profile of Jay-Z. This was right before his Blueprint album came out. And at the time, Jay-Z was considered you know, this kind of money cash hose rapper who wasn't necessarily given the respect that I thought he was due as a, you know, a brilliant wordsmith, a great artist, et cetera, et cetera. And yet he was super popular. And so to me, this idea of millions of people are buying this form of music, this oral poetry, and it's not getting the respect and people need to know about it. Even if they're never going to buy the album, they need to know that it's happening. And that was true even within hip hop. I remember hearing an album called 400 Degrees by a rapper called Juvenile from New Orleans. This record, it's the record that's probably now known best for Back That Ass Up or Back That Thing Up, as it was called in the censored version. Um, Hugely popular record, sold something like 4 million copies in the US. But even people who were writing about hip hop in mainstream outlets didn't really like this stuff. It was perceived is kind of not that respectable. He's using all this local slang. He's got 
gold teeth. It's the, the lyrics aren't particularly idealistic. And so, you know, even within the hip hop world, some of that stuff wasn't getting the respect that I felt it deserved, right? I felt that record was a, a masterpiece of slang and of electronic production, just a brilliant album, even underrated even to this day, I think. And so that was what gave me that kind of evangelistic spirit to go out. And I really want to tell people, I really want to explain to people how excellent this stuff is, how interesting this stuff is, how we are living through a golden age, in this case of hip hop. And like most golden ages, people People are maybe kind of missing it while it's going along. So those two things were the things that made me want to really like dive into writing about music and tell the world about it. Right. Because I've always I've mainly written for kind of mainstream outlets as opposed to specialist magazines. Um, and if you're writing for a more specialist outlet, you're kind of talking to people who already know about the music. Right. And you're saying like, oh, if you like this and this, you should check out this. And last month they did a remix of this and the drums were kind of like that. Right. That's a different conversation than if you're talking to a mainstream audience, which is full of people who might never hear this stuff, who have no interest in checking it out, even after they read the thing you wrote about it. And the question is, how do you make this interesting to them? And in a way, you know, that's kind of the task I set myself in this book as well. My assumption is that if you pick up this book that I wrote, you know, you might not ever find yourself going back to like the 1980s singles that are the roots of gangster rap. You know, you might not ever get into death metal. You might not ever be particularly interested in the sort of very smooth love songs that dominated country music in the 1970s, but that it can be fun to learn about this stuff, even if you're not going to listen to them. And so, that has always, when I write about music, that has always been my goal. How do I make this? How do I make this fun and interesting for someone who's not a fan, while hopefully not sounding like a moron to those people who are fans? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Califa Sane and we're talking about his book, Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. And Califa, just thinking back again to that sort of transition from punk to hip hop. And again, I guess with the caveat that, as you said, in, in the first half, punk wasn't particularly ambitious as a musical form in terms of the fact, you know, it wanted to appeal to small groups of people and to keep it real, you know, to be authentic. Looking over to hip hop, keeping it real is absolutely central to large parts of, of the hip hop world. But that also is something that is seen from the outside as almost being everything that's wrong with hip hop. Is you yeah. know, this is any sort of arguments about you know gangster rap or about the characters that you know hip hop artists play about being street is everything that's wrong with it, isn't it? And that seems like a terrible double standard. Well, it, it's funny. I mean, it is true of hip hop, and, and this has a few different causes that hip hop has never actually been widely respected in the present tense, which is to say, there's never been a time when leading politicians and professors and members of the cultural elite get together, take a look at what's going on with rappers and say, this stuff is great. These fellows are doing great work. Bravo to them, right? It's always been, whether it was Run DMC or Public Enemy or Snoop Dogg or Jay-Z or 50 Cent, you know, there's never been a time. It's not like Outkast puts out Southern Playalistic Cadillac music in 1994 and get they suddenly get an invitation to the White House, right? I mean, so that's sense of hip-hop as being kind of disrespected, you know, probably it has something to do with the, with the, the identity of hip-hop as Black music, but it probably also has something to do with the fact that rappers themselves tend to be obsessed with respect, but also obsessed with not being respectable, right? Part of what's made hip-hop last so long and be so entertaining for so long is that rappers kind of shirk some of those responsibilities that people think they have, right? Rapping kind of sounds like talking. It sort of sounds a little bit like speech making. So there's always been a tendency to look at hip-hop and say, well, what are these, what's happening in these speeches? Or how come, how come these speeches aren't more sensible or aren't more uplifting? As if you're reviewing a speech and the genius of rap has been finding a way to deliver words in this kind of spoken way and having it not feel like speech, having it feel like music. And in that sense, a lot of times that's been accomplished by rappers, you know, sort of easing off the importance of meaning. In, in other words, making weird logical leaps or sort of just bullshitting or just running their mouth or saying something serious and then following it with something silly. You know, that's a way to keep listeners off guard and to, to prevent listeners from reading your music, as it were, and getting them to listen to it instead, getting them to hear the music in your syllables, in your voice. And that's been one of the uh, one of the great triumphs of hip hop. You know, but but it turns out when you think about music, a lot of these terms, respectable, authentic, real, weird, progressive, radical, these turn out to be really unstable terms, really hard to define. And in hip hop as elsewhere, one person's authentic has been someone else's bullshit. Right. And this is this has often been true. Right. The thing, what does it mean to keep it real? Right. And when that phrase is popularized in hip hop in the 1990s, it's kind of two things at once. Right. Keep it real means you have to live up maybe to this kind of street or gangster archetype. But keep it real also means 
be true to yourself. And there's some tension with that, right? There's some tension when you have outsiders, whether they're listeners or other rappers, demanding that you keep it real, when in some sense, reality is something that only you can define for yourself. And so there is this tension of to what extent are you performing for the community, Is that a way to keep it real, right? To satisfy your audience? That's one way that musicians keep it real is they stay true to their genre or to their audience and and they make music that their people, their fans want to hear. Another way of keeping it real is to express what's really on your mind. And sometimes those things are in conflict. Marvin Gaye, the great soul singer, you know, talked in his biography about those two things. He said, said, deep down, I want to be just like sitting on a stool at a supper club, you know, singing songs for white Republicans. Like that was what he wanted. He wanted to be, you know, like a Frank Sinatra kind of a performer. That seemed exciting to him. But because he was an R&B singer, he felt like he was linked to the R&B audience, which expected him to perform on stage, maybe dance a little bit. Toward the end of his career, he started stripping down to his underwear, which was kind of this this gesture of like self-sacrifice or self-abnegation. I mean, a really strange spectacle, but it was also a dramatization of the conflict between these two notions of keeping it real. Does keeping it real mean doing what I want or does keeping it real mean giving the fans what they want? And I think that's something that musicians in all sorts of genres have struggled with. Yeah, I was going to come to, to R&B next because, you know, this is again a, a sort of very cheap and concise shorthand for, for R&B. To describe it to somebody could just be this is black music. This was like, yeah. the, you know, the hip hop before hip hop. And you talk in the book about obviously that story about Marvin Gaye, but on a wider level into which that idea that R&B is black music both was a benefit to the artists in a lot of ways but also obviously at the same time restricted them and restricted how far they could go how famous they could become well yeah and and you know there's this amazing moment in i think it's 1982 where billboard magazine takes its soul music chart and it renames it black music and 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 to, to some people in this world, this seems great, right? We're gonna we're gonna name what this music is. We're gonna give credit where it's due, and we're also gonna have this inclusive term, right? Black music could include hip hop and R and B and gospel and jazz and blues and great. All this stuff can live together under the umbrella of black music. The flip side of that, of course, is that it feels a little bit like segregation. It is segregation in a sense, or it's or it's a reflection of pre existing segregation, and so. You know, at various times, especially in R&B, performers have had to figure out what do we do? If, if you're Aretha Franklin, do you team up with George Michael to get your second and final number one hit with a crossover song? That's one thing you can do. Or can you be like Luther Vandross, right? One of the great R&B singers. He never had a number one pop hit. And that bugged him. He felt like he should be on pop radio. And even as that bugged him, the fact that he was so successful on the R&B charts, which means successful on R&B radio stations and to a lesser extent in R&B record stores when they existed, you know, that meant that he had this. He had this really profound connection to listeners. If you were an R&B fan, you could feel like Luther was yours. You didn't have to share him with the pop world. And so that was really powerful. You know, this is linked, especially in the U.S., to math, by which I mean, you know, Black people are 12% of the population, according to the most recent census in America. And so if you're an R&B singer and you want to perform for an audience where Black people are not a small minority, right? That means performing for a Black audience. That's by necessity going to be a kind of a non-mainstream audience. And if you cross over and get mainstream success, 
that's going to mean that black listeners are a minority among your listeners. And, and that could have effects. It's also going to affect what happens in other genres, right? Because these genres all sort of work together because there's only so many listeners. And so in the US, for example, in a country that's 12% black, if you have R&B and hip hop as, as genres that have disproportionately black fan bases, well, that means that other genres are going to have disproportionately non-black fan bases, right? Just as a, a matter of simple math. And so one thing that I write about in my book and that, that people have had to figure out is if we say that it's great to celebrate the existence of black musical genres, both in terms of performers and listeners, does that mean that we can also celebrate the existence of white genres, performers and listeners? And if, on the other hand, we say that country music, which has been perceived as a white genre for decades, even though, of course, it was, it's been influenced by all sorts of Black performers and had some Black performers within it, if nevertheless, you know, country music, this genre that's perceived as white, if we say that country music needs to integrate well, do we also believe that R&B needs to integrate? If it's important for more Black listeners and Black musicians to, to gravitate toward country music, does that mean that it's important for white listeners and white musicians to gravitate toward R&B? Does that mean that you want within a country every genre to reflect the demographics of the country? And so that, you know, that's a broader argument, a broader discussion about integration and segregation. And you know, obviously that plays out politically in all sorts of ways. But one of the interesting things about music is that music helps us see the upside of division, sometimes even the upside of segregation. And that ironically, the diversity of genres that exists wouldn't exist if all of these communities were themselves more diverse, right? The, the, only, reason, the only reason the death metal world and the R&B world and the country world seem so different from each other is because their fan bases are unique, are distinct, and that has to do with the social and musical divisions that are reflected in the music. One of my favourite stories in the book about your own musical evolution is that, you know, you said you, you first discovered a great love of music through punk. Then, you know, eventually you go to, you go to Harvard University, arguably one of the, uh, the greatest universities in the world. Certainly anybody that went to Harvard would say so. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you go to, as a lot of, you know, students do, you, you try to sort of volunteer for the, um, the, the university um, radio station and you have to do this incredibly intense course in punk music. Like you have to oh, learn this, this esoteric knowledge about punk to, to qualify for the radio station, which is just amazing. But, you know, I, I just raised that. We don't have time to talk about that, but I just raised that again to sort of, to sort of wonder out loud how you ended up ever being a fan of country music. <laughs> well, you know, the thing that the thing that I taught that I really learned at this radio station, you know, literally there's a there's an entrance exam, then there's a semester long unofficial course taught by other DJs where you get a lecture every week about some aspect of punk history. And there's a listening assignment where you got to come by and listen to some punk, some classic punk records and say what you think about them. You know, obviously, on one hand, it seems ridiculous. Punk is supposed to be about breaking the rules. And here's this this radio station that's devoted to orthodoxy. But one thing that taught me was that every Every genre had some sort of orthodoxy, even or maybe particularly the genres that claim to have no rules. And that anytime you have a community where people are saying, this is anything goes, this is a community with no rules, you know, that's a good time to start getting a little bit skeptical and looking around because in 
inevitably there are some rules. Inevitably, there are some ideas about who's included and who's excluded. And once you see music in that way, you see punk rock as maybe a little bit less unique, that every genre, every tribe, every community functions this way a little bit. And, you know, and, and country music is a great example of how sometimes when there's a strong cultural identity, which country music has, right, you can you can grow up country, you can be a, a country person. I talked to Morgan Wallen, who's one of the big country stars of the moment. And he told me like, he didn't really listen to country music growing up. He listened to like Nickelback and rock bands. But because he was growing up in a small town in Tennessee, he felt like he was culturally country. And when he started writing and singing songs, he said like, it just came out country, right? Because he had this country identity. And one of the reasons why people love to argue about country music so much is because it has such a strong cultural identity. And that identity enables a certain amount of musical creativity. In other words, as long as you live the country life, you can experiment with the music and still be country, right? That's the lesson of Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton is as country as it gets. So even when she's singing nine to five, which is basically a disco song, she's still a country singer because that's how she grew up. Similarly, if you're Blake Shelton, you're singing a song about how you don't, you don't listen to the Beatles. You listen to Bocephus, Hank Williams Jr. And the song's called Boys Round Here. And it's all about being a good old boy, but he's rapping, Right. And the reason why you're allowed to rap and it's still country is because your cultural identity is so well established. And so that's one of the things that I really found fascinating about country music is that it had this strong sense of tribe. Of course, just on a purely musical level, there was something about the fact about the perfectionism of country music, the fact that in Nashville, you had hundreds of brilliant songwriters all working to craft the perfect love song and the you know they the perfect lyric and and there was nothing to hide behind right you couldn't hide your your melody behind big clouds of distortion you couldn't hide your lyrics by being sort of cryptic and having it hard to figure out what you meant you had to have a big plain obvious catchy melody you had to have lyrics that anyone could interpret and anyone could understand and you had to still write a great song so that challenge that that sort of country music songwriter set for themselves was really seductive to me. And I found myself loving country music, not just the classic Willie Nelson records, but modern commercial country music, precisely because it's this site where great music combines with this often very combustible discussion about what it means to be country music. And, and that's one legacy of punk in me personally, which is anywhere people are having a fight, anywhere people are having an argument, anywhere where people are saying music should be like this. No, it should be like that. That's always going to be interesting to me. One more question then to finish this off. What even is the point of sort of mainstream print media music critics? now in the age of streaming and YouTube and bands with enormous fan bases who are you know famously aggressive online if anybody dares even give their favorite artist a three-star review or whatever you know basically what I'm trying to say is you know not that necessarily those people would read the New Yorker but how would you approach reviewing the the next BTS album? Well, I think it's a couple of things. One is that it's true that in the old days, reading a critic might be the easiest way to figure out what something sounds like. Certainly no longer true, right? Certainly <laughs> there are much easier ways to figure out what music sounds like than reading a critic. So the question is, what is this for? And one answer is just that it's 
there to be interesting and entertaining and enlightening. And, and for me, if I'm writing about whatever I'm writing about, if I'm writing about music, the key is to try and make it interesting to people who aren't in that world. I think it's true that a lot of that discussion has moved online and, and, and fan bases can be quite intimidating online. But to me, what that also shows is that people still love to fight about music, right? And, and so I've got to look at that as a good thing too. If, if you're someone like me who also has some opinions about music and likes to share them, the fact that there is still an appetite for people to share opinions about music is enormously heartening. And I think as long as, as, long as music is important to people, as long as people use music to establish their identity, to say something about who they are, what sort of person they are, you know, people are going to be interested in hearing from other people, in arguing with with other people in sometimes being part of a big team and saying, yes, yes, we all like Beyonce. We're all part of this. And sometimes they're going to like being part of a smaller team and saying like, no, I'm not like those other people. Me and my friends are not like you and your friends. And, you know, that push pull of music as a place where we can all come together and find freedom and music as a place where we can all sort of pull apart and find identity, you know, those are the two, the, the two fundamental forces in music fandom. And as long as music remains popular and influential, which is hopefully for a long time, I think people will have those discussions. And whether they're having them in newspapers or magazines, or whether they're having them online or on TikTok or wherever that's happening, those discussions are going to keep going forward. And I'm going to stay interested in those discussions. So I've been talking to Kalefa Sane about his new book, Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres, which is out in the UK from Canongate. Califer, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thanks. And if people take exception to anything that I said, please send complaints directly to Little Adams. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.